So I'm unmuting you now. All right. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to uh, the Tuesday Grand R Cancer Center Grand Rounds. Uh, my name is Joe Paterfar. For those of you who don't know me, I'm one of the head neck surgeons here. Um, I'd like to welcome everybody, and I'm uh, very pleased to introduce, uh, introduce Dr. Mary Playtech, uh, who comes to us from uh, Roswell Park. Uh, so she's an assistant professor of oncology in the Department of Cancer Prevention and Control. Her uh, Training uh, originally started as a registered dietitian uh, and uh, then went on to get her master's degree in the same uh, at NYU, I believe, uh, and then uh, um, felt that that was not enough and needed to get additional training. I uh, got her PhD uh, um, at the State University of New York at Buffalo, where she also got her uh, RD training as well. I made a mistake. Uh, and then did a postdoc at uh, Roswell Park, and she stayed on there as faculty and has been there since. Uh, her uh, areas of expertise are in cancer cachexia, age-related and cancer-related sarcopenia, malnutrition screening, diet and exercise intervention for cancer survivors. Uh, she's actively involved in uh, training uh, uh, students, uh, both medical students and registered dietitians, uh, and uh, has been actively involved in uh, helping to establish guidelines uh, for cancer cachexia through ASCO and uh, uh, has done some work with our dietitian here, Janine Mills, uh, and Janine was uh, excited about bringing her up to uh, have her talk to us about malnutrition risk and sarcopenia in head and neck cancer. So uh, uh, per her conf conflict of interest statement, she does not have any financial interests, uh, will not be uh, does not intend to discuss off-label or investigational uses of a product or device, and she is not receiving direct payments from a commercial with respect to this activity. So please join me in welcoming uh, Dr. Playtech. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm going to guess that I'm on. Everybody can hear me. So thank you so much uh, for the group for uh, inviting me to come. This has been a wonderful opportunity um, to work, uh, to, to come here and get to know the work that you do here. Uh, I've been spending a lot of time with these two wonderful women in the front. <laughs> Probably don't want to be uh, asked to stand out, but um, two dietitians, Janine and Elise, who do a great job in outpatient oncology here. So um, do we have students in the audience? No, sort of. No one wants to identify. Okay, <laughs> well, okay. Uh, practitioners for the most part. Okay. Um, so. I'm here really to tell a story. Uh, it's, it's quite possible that I have too many slides. And so if I buzz through some, it's because I'm watching my time. I'm really to, here to tell a story. It's a journey. Uh, part of it is what I've seen through my professional life. And the other part of it is what I've learned through looking at evidence and conducting research and working with patients. So, uh, so the focus is head and neck cancer because that is the those patients are the focus of my work and they have been for quite some time. Um, the title is malnutrition risk and sarcopenia. And for those who are getting CME, uh, my objectives uh, extended out to trying to understand the the subtle differences actually between malnutrition, cachexia, and sarcopenia. So we're going to run through all of those. And as already mentioned, I have. Uh, have nothing to declare. Uh, so we're going to look uh, quickly at nutritional status and its impact on cancer. 
and then look at those three uh, types of syndromes, I'm going to call them, and, and maybe what some of the differences can be. I'm going to offer you some of uh, evidence I have from some of the pilot uh, work that I'm doing at Roswell within head and neck cancer patients, and then just talk about what are the obstacles and what might the next steps be. And all of this is quite focused on uh, nutrition care of the patient while they move through their um, continuum of cancer. Okay, so to get started, um, we really are concerned about inadequate nutritional status among cancer patients. Um, we know, and, and when you think about inadequate nutritional status, you can just think about that scale. I mean, there, there's an off balance. We're not balanced. We should be balanced. And so some of these things arise simply because of the tumor, okay? Uh, some of this is the host response to the tumor. So everybody's response is going to be somewhat different. A lot that I am looking at and that we know of is treatment-related, so, um, you know, what kind of treatment is it? How large is the insult, uh, et cetera? And then we can't forget the other factors. Cancer patients come to this, they're newly diagnosed, they're, they're frightened, they're anxious, um, they're depressed. Um, and then they have their lifestyle factors that they've had all along that maybe are not supportive of what they need to do now. So there's so many things going on. And oftentimes the first question, a cancer patient has is, what do I eat or what don't I eat? Um, and so uh, these are really important items that all come together to affect adequate nutritional status. If we want to think about treatment effects, well, hey, what kind of treatment are you getting? Are you getting one of these up on the screen? Are you getting more than one of these? Uh, you know, for some of our patients, they have induction chemo, they might have uh, surgery, and then they roll right into radiation therapy. So it might be a trimodal package. And if you think about each of these, and these are just a few treatment effects for the person. These are impacts to the person's health. These are specifically nutrition impact symptoms that our patients deal with going through radiation, chemotherapy, and surgery. And all of this just makes it awfully difficult for someone's journey to, um, to be as positive as it can be. But we also can't forget that people present, clinically present for diagnosis with other things. They may have been losing weight for a long time. They may have other nutrition concerns and problems that happened before diagnosis. And those that are there already are going to intensify along with maybe some of these newer nutrition impact symptoms just simply because they're going through their treatment. So I just want to make note of this one study. We published it in 2015. We actually conducted it through 2012. I was part of this study where we looked at outpatients from seven different centers. And actually, I was, well, I don't know what that did. That doesn't do this. So the, no. Okay. Actually, I was part of this study from, I was both at Roswell Park and New York University. So I was involved for both of those. But Actually, um, what we find out from this is as we interview patients in the outpatient center as they're undergoing treatment, 84% of them experienced symptoms, all different kinds of symptoms. The major symptoms that they're talking about is fatigue. So if you imagine if you're tired, you might not even have the energy to figure out what you should eat or going to get food if you don't have enough supportive care. Constipation, poor appetite was one of the highest ones. 
uh, dry mouth was was uh, up there, nausea and vomiting, a variety of other GI symptoms. So we know that these exist. But the interesting part of the survey is that these symptoms are most likely to occur, at least within this population of thousands of patients we looked at, for those who were losing weight unintentionally. So their symptoms were more, there were more symptoms. They were more likely in those who consumed less food and less beverages since they began treatment. Many of these patients uh, were diagnosed like nine months before, within nine months before. And also we know avoiding foods during treatment. So no one should be avoiding all, you know, a certain group of foods. So besides macronutrient deficiencies associated with the symptomology, we actually find micronutrient deficiencies. So, uh, you know, vitamin C deficiency, uh, folate deficiency, vitamin B12 deficiency, vitamin D, um, as long as some, along with some minerals like magnesium and zinc and copper. So what are the implications? Well, I think the biggest one, right? So we've spent a lot of time in research trying to figure out targeted treatments uh, to have the best treatments possible because we want our patients to survive, be cancer-free, go into remission. So for me, like the headliner is this has implications for cancer treatment. If people are ill, uh, their treatment response decreases. And this isn't just me saying it. This is based on data. In fact, there's like 45 different references that I could give you for this. Um, treatment complications are going to be worse. Treatment toxicity will be higher. So that head and neck patient could have a higher level of mucositis. And what does this do? It alters, could alter the treatment schedule. It could interrupt treatment. The last thing that a radiation oncologist wants to do is interrupt that treatment. We don't want delay in treatment. Um, and then if you are on a chemotherapy and you have to de-escalate the dose, then we know we're not optimally treating the patient. So total effects in addition to treatment interruption would be we see poor quality of life in our patients. Uh, we see hospital readmission. They're more likely to be readmitted to the hospital. It's an unplanned admission, and most of that is due to infections. And when we look at that subgroup who had high symptomology, poor nutritional status back in the hospital, their length of, length of stay is higher than the average length of stay for that hospital. And of course, um, early mortality. So what, are, what else do we know? You know, if we want to target people, who are the people that really need help? Okay, those who have advanced disease will need more help. Okay, so those who have advanced disease have a harder time through their treatment. Um, certain sites, GI, lung, and head, neck, have been uh, noted to have uh, a higher intensity of consequences um, and also anybody with any diagnosis who's getting multimodal treatment, so getting more than one insult. Um, and, and it could be any advanced cancer um, as well. What are the clinical nutrition limitations? Well, we have dealt with years of not having universally accepted um, operational definitions. So if we don't have operational definitions, then we're all classifying things differently. And then if we want to collect that data and compare it, we can't. Um, we do have a, a, a new paper came out um, by White et al. So it's not a white paper, but it's by Dr. White. 
came out in 2012 for the uh, Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics on now what to do about malnutrition, actually having criteria to look at. So we're starting to apply that. But another really big problem is non-standardized screening. Okay, we've had uh, lots of time where people have put together their own screening, non-validated screening, everybody doing different screening. So if you're saying my prevalence or my incidence is this or percentage is this, we can't compare it anywhere else and we can't, we can't say a lot about it. Uh, and probably even larger is the fact that we have limited availability of our registered dietitian nutritionists in the outpatient setting. And that's actually how I'm gonna end my talk. Not that I'm ending right now, <laughs> just moving through. Okay, so what was that definition that um, came out in that paper? Um, the paper was actually, this is the 2012 paper in the Journal of Parental and Enteral Nutrition. Uh, we now actually have moved to relate to malnutrition by looking at etiology. So it's etiology-based. In fact, it's inflammatory-based. That's really the basis of malnutrition. So when we uh, have our criteria is for chronic disease-related malnutrition. This is the new way that we're categorizing. And that's based on having chronic inflammation, but at a mild to moderate level. And then there's also acute disease or injury-related malnutrition. And that's inflammation that's acute and to a severe degree. So what I want to offer today is for us to think about this, malnutrition. Well, our cancer patients have a chronic disease, they have chronic inflammation, right? So they're somewhere maybe between the mild and moderate degree. They could be, okay? But then we have to think about that we put treatment on top of that, and it might be actually having two phases, right? Because nothing in, our, in the world of medicine is black and white necessarily. Nothing in nutrition fits in one bin necessarily with not a toe in the other bin. So perhaps we have someone with chronic inflammation, uh, malnutrition due to that, but may also have acute severe uh, inflammation because now they just um, have a cumulative effect from their chemo or their radiation. So the diagnostic criteria that as clinical nutritionists, what we're looking at is inadequate energy intake. So we're asking, <laughs> what are you eating now? How has that changed, et cetera? But making it relative to the patient, because oftentimes our patients present, and I've seen this before, I sit in tumor boards all the time, and physicians will say, well, they said that they weren't eating, or that they were eating just fine, that nothing changed. Well, that's because they were talking to you, possibly, you know, don't know at all, but that's perhaps because they're thinking relative to a month ago, I'm eating the same. I have soup every night, that's it. But that's what I did a month ago, so I'm eating the same. The question is really, what were you eating before all of this? And how has that changed? And then unintentional weight loss, the same thing. So this is a criteria that we use. We also are looking at pre-BMI. The jury is still not out because now we're, it is not all done with this because we, uh, we, we have some indication that a higher BMI. So in this setting of catabolic disease, like cancer, pre -BMI, high pre-BMI might actually be helpful in setting of all other chronic diseases, it is not. But I, I say that with limitation because we're also understanding that it depends upon muscle mass, which I will get into. So we'll just kind of leave that. So we're looking at that, but we're also measuring 
a body fat, muscle mass, fluid accumulation, grip strength for overall strength, um, and um, doing a physical exam. Okay, so here are weight loss clinical definitions. Actually, this came out of looking at aging originally, it goes back a long time. I know a lot of history because I've been around for a long time and how things have changed. But these are sort of clinical definitions. Would my dietitians in the front agree with me? For, for severity and significant loss, this is unintentional weight loss. This is pretty much what we've used all along. We still use this, okay? It's a grid to kind of put someone in a bin. <laughs> How bad are they? Um, the issue is this. Our patients don't look the same anymore. Across the country, everybody's heavier. I, years ago, my cancer patients never really came in. Occasionally, someone was overweight, very occasionally, but not, not obese. So now our patients present differently. And if, is this still, is, can we still apply this? Is this, is this still the same grid? So we have an increased prevalence of overweight and obesity, and we have very unclear definitions of what now is clinically significant weight loss okay, in patients with cancer. And um, those levels of BMI, as I just said, because we have papers coming out going in the setting of catabolic disease, higher BMI may be protective. But levels of BMI associated with lower survival are highly variable. Uh, here's the other thing, and the thing we really have to key in on is that body weight and weight loss, they're gonna vary in composition. I may lose weight, I may lose more fat than I lose muscle. So we have to look at muscle uh, mass and fat composition. They tell us things. Right now, we're looking at sarcopenia or in the setting of cancer, severe muscle depletion. And when we look at those who have severe muscle depletion from beginning of treatment to end of treatment, we see it now as an independent diagnostic factor for decreased survival in obese patients with cancer. So now I'm going to bring uh, you to sarcopenia. The actual data, just like anything else, operational definitions, how do we, how do we call it? When, when do we say we are sarcopenic? So the three variables that must be measured for sarcopenia is muscle mass loss, loss in muscle strength, and decline in performance. Actually, uh, cancer-related sarcopenia involves all of those, and so we need to measure those things. We actually have ICD-10 coding now for it, which came out in 2016. You coding here for sarcopenia? Not yet. People are just getting on this. I'm not seeing papers that are coming out yet with we coded for this or that. So just like we added, we have this algorithm for weight loss, but that gets complicated by the obese and overweight person. We have this idea of sarcopenia, but now we got to think about it, right? We have America's getting older. We have older patients that present for cancer. We have older patients in pretty good shape who are going through standard treatment. So how sarcopenic are they? Because what we do know in a healthy population, age gets you there. Okay, age gets you to a lot of these declines. After 50 years old, unfortunately, we're all losing muscle mass of 1% to 2% annually. Okay, we're losing muscle strength by 1.5% annually between 50 and 60, and uh, decreased muscle strength by 3% annually 
greater than 60. Can we tone that down? Does this happen exactly like this for everyone? You know, what are, what are the things we can do to slow this down? That's another talk. But for now, we have to think about our older patients who come, and now we may have a treatment that promotes muscle loss. So what do they present at? Okay. In a healthy population, on the bottom of the slide, it says, in a healthy population, uh, when we looked at NHANES data, that 60 to 70-year-olds, about 13% of them, could be diagnosed with sarcopenia. And those who are 80 and over, 50%, up to 50%, could be diagnosed with sarcopenia. So that could be the person who enters our cancer center. Uh, this is a picture of, these are three men, they all have different BMIs, as you can see. They all have exactly this, not exactly, they all have estimated um, skeletal muscle index equal. So they're all at a different weight, but they all have the same muscle mass. So that's something we have to think about. All right, now just a little bit about cancer cachexia. Uh, on the bottom of that blue text, um, on the, the text box, it says uh, Fearon. A big paper, and I don't know if anybody in the audience knows it, but a big paper in 2011 was published by Fearon et al. Um, and the group, um, wonderful cancer cachexia researcher, has since passed. Um, but this was an international consensus because, again, no operational definition. Let's get together and establish an international consensus. And so that's what this paper is. And if you wanted any more information on it, that's the paper to read. It's what started. So um, we def they defined it as a multifactorial syndrome. There is ongoing loss of skeletal muscle mass. And in cancer, we see that loss of muscle mass either by itself or with fat loss. I'm seeing in my population both fat loss and muscle loss. We have certainly have negative protein and energy uh, balance. And really, this is driven by a lot of metabolic dysregulation um, related to cytokines and a whole cascade that occurs. But it's also driven by decreased food at least in the beginning. The, uh, this is just a quick schematic that I put together where we have cachexia with the, with the side, where we have this metabolic dysregulation that ends up affecting body weight and the other side that it strictly, you know, it just starts with anorexia, very poor appetite, and then affecting uh, down to gastric emptying, et cetera, not being able to chew and swallow body weight. We have losses in lean mass, body uh, and fat mass, and that's going to eventually affect, obviously affects quality of life, uh, physical performance, and then it, it ends up affecting survival. So in um, a more recent paper in 2016, they looked at the percentage of those people who have cancer and about how many end up through the continuum of cancer at any point being cachectic. It really is up to 80%, 50 to 80%. And so it's not that everybody, some of these people maybe are cachectic for a while during treatment and got caught and assisted and it reversed. But we do know that 20% of our cancer patients actually die from the cachexia and not from the cancer. And the issue is, 
if we don't pick it up before it becomes refractory, we, there isn't anything that we can do. So in the international consensus, they establish stages. And so the goal, what? The goal of health today to impact burden is prevention, right? And so I'm not talking about here prevention of cancer. That's another group of epidemiologists and nutritionists who do that. My goal in management of cancer is to prevent these kinds of things. So it would be to like, can we get this person at stage one? We all know with cancer, if we get that person at stage one in situ early on, we do better. So can we get this person at stage one? And so with this paper, there's a whole host of metabolic signs and can we find those people who are pre-cachectic and then we have a chance to work with them and turn that around. Um, this is the second stage, a little more weight loss. Here though, we're saying if you have a BMI less than 20 and a weight loss that's even less, we have to categorize you now as being cachectic. We still have opportunity here maybe to change this person around. In the world of cancer, in the regular uh, setting, we would say BMI less than 18.5 would be problematic and underweight, but I know I use a BMI less than 20 in the world of cancer. I'm not sure how we, although we see more of the BMI greater than 30 than we do, do of this. But um, if they're showing, um, if we estimate sarcopenia, then we're concerned and, and we would categorize them as stage two. And stage three, you know, very active breakdown of almost everything. It's very low performance. And in fact, most of these patients' life expectancy is going to be less than uh, three months. And so here, we're, there is no resolution. This is a cachectic person. Uh, this is someone with refractory cachexia. This is what we do now. <laughs> Patient, every, we're chasing the tail. We don't, we, okay, we didn't notice it. Now we're in this. We really can't do anything. This dog doesn't know what to do. I don't know what to do. We have to do better. That's what I know. <clears throat> so um, a nice paper by Miller came out that helped me explain to you the commonalities and the differences, because no one, you know, everybody gets confused. Is it malnutrition? Is it sarcopenia? Is it cachexia? There's a lot of complexity overlay. So really, they all include unintentional weight loss. If we wanted a marker that we can physically measure, it's unintentional weight loss. They all include nutritional depletion, and that truly pay, plays a part in the decline. So that's what a dietitian needs to pay attention to early on. Really, for all of these, we really just don't seem to identify them early, and sometimes they're just not noticed early. We definitely need to work on that. What are the differences? Well, let's say with sarcopenia and cachexia, front and center is definitely muscle loss. But you could be sarcopenia, be sarcopenic and not be cachectic, right? So we have elderly community dwellers who are sarcopenic. They're not cachexic. Usually, well, cachexia occurs in the presence of a chronic disease, for sure. But you don't have to have a chronic disease for sarcopenia. And you could be malnour malnourished and maybe not in the setting of a chronic disease because you could be have a simple malnutrition. You could have um, a simple uh, related to um, to not eating, okay? 
Um, and here's the big thing. Nutrition support cannot reverse cachexia as we move from cachexia into refractory cachexia. But sure as heck can reverse malnutrition. <coughs> and right now there are a lot of studies on how can we rebuild muscle mass for sarcopenia. So there's lots of that going on. So the suggestion is maybe we should just start with that unintentional weight loss. Okay, that's a red flag. Let's just start there. And maybe... Maybe we should just consider these three things, syndromes that fall under unintentional weight loss. Now, I'm not trying to solve every disease problem. I'm talking about in the setting of cancer, because certainly when I read papers about um, uh, liver disease-associated malnutrition, cardiac uh, disease-associated malnutrition, there's little subtle differences between those. So I'm just talking about um, cancer. Okay, what do, I, what do I use and what's been shown in, um, in cancer care to screen, to begin to screen for at least malnutrition risk? As I said, everybody's doing something different right now. So uh, there was this uh, scored patient-generated subjective global assessment that actually Faith Ottery, who was an um, oncologist surgeon, a breast oncologist surgeon and researcher, who put this together in 1996, it was published. And she, she did it through her own clinical experiences, through a personal experience with her mother, and um, put this all together. She took the subjective global assessment. Many of you may have read about that particular tool because it's been around since at least the early 80s. And she thought that if we can capture symptomology and we treat symptomology early on and we keep up with measuring symptomology and treating it, we might do better. We might make it through. People might feel better. So she has impact symptoms on this that she's added to the SGA. She has this history section that the patient actually generates, fills out. And she made it a scoring algorithm that gives us a triage component. So in other words, you have this many, this much scoring, a diet, you could just do patient education. Uh, you have this much scoring and a, def a dietitian definitely needs to see you, maybe the rest of the team. It was validated, it was validated in oncology. And what I love about it is that it's in particular been validated in head and neck cancer patients who are ambulatory uh, radiation medicine clinic patients. So the short form on that has now been considered a malnutrition risk screener. And in that, and I have some copies if anybody wants to look at it, um, we asked the patients basically four sets of questioning. So wait, what did you, what do you weigh now? We're asking them for their information. What did you weigh a month ago, six months ago? Food intake, has it changed over the last two weeks? What is it now? And, it's, and we have specific check boxes that align with scoring. Uh, what is your symptoms? Appetite, GI, is a whole host of them, plus you're allowed to fill in some. Um, what is your activities and function? Are you normal? And there's more to it. But it goes all the way out to I really don't move, I can't get out of a chair, I'm really out of bed. So this, there's lots of studies. Uh, Gabelson in 2013 showed that it had uh, pretty good sensitivity and specificity. And that's a problem for us as dietitians because if we have a tool, we want high sensitivity. We want to bring everybody in. We don't want to miss anybody. But it can't be too high 
for the specificity has to be good because we don't have staff to see who we screen in. We can't screen in and not see them. I can do a lot in clinical research because it's just research. So I can find the answer, you know, I can help to find answers. Okay, so what am I doing uh, back in Buffalo, New York in Roswell? Where it hasn't snowed yet, luckily. Okay. Um, I started, okay, let me just say this. So my friends are in head and neck surgery and in um, radiation medicine. And uh, you have to build up a network of friends to be able to do things if you don't have a lot of money to pay anybody. So this has been my career, uh, what I do. Um, uh, so many people, uh, you know, I've, I've built a lot of friends and I have a lot of great relationships, but this is the only way that uh, a dietitian who has a PhD can get a lot of things done. So um, I have a group of radiotherapists who are working with me um, on getting this survey out to patients. So this is what we have. You know, you have to be an adult. You're undergoing radiation therapy for head and neck cancer at Roswell Park. You agree to take the survey during the first week of treatment, and you agree to take it during the last week of treatment. And the only people who are excluding those who do not speak uh, or understand English and don't have a translator or anybody to help them. Very simple. Make, I make things extraordinarily simple. Dr. Singh, who I work with, we make it so simple in a way that we're getting through IRB and we're doing our stuff. Otherwise, you could wait sometimes for years for that to happen. <laughs> Um, so the radiotherapists identify new patients. We have a wonderful system. I get the, the intake, who's coming in, who's starting, who's finishing. Uh, they identify them. They send that to me. And then they actually provide the patient with the survey. So um, I do pencil and paper, but it doesn't stay that way. So then I enter it into a RedCap database, and then I can analyze everything. Um, I didn't, I started this in June of 2017. Today I have data up through July of 2019, but obviously this is perspective, it's on, ongoing. This perspective collection with a retrospective review. So this is ongoing and I am getting close to three, 300 patients right now. So um, I have 200 patients with beginning and end. So yes, there's some noise in the population. The nice part is it's paired. Um, the other nice part is I've collected the data on all the noise, so I know what the noise is. I can control for the noise. I can stratify. I can do all those things. So you can imagine the noise, right? Definitive treatment, um, rare kind of uh, tumor, uh, different stages and all those things. But, but we have all this covered. So right now we have 200 that have been logged into REDCap. Uh, as expected in head and neck, the majority of patients are male. In our population, just about everybody's uh, Caucasian and non-Hispanic Latino. Um, I'm collecting mainly primary tumors. Um, the majority of them, more than the majority, are squamous cell carcinomas and in the areas of pharyngeal, oral cavity, laryngeal. Um, the difference nowadays is that 68% of those people coming in are actually overweight or, um, or obese. The mean age of this population is about 64, with a standard deviation of about 11. Okay. So I'm taking those surveys of these people, and then I'm scoring it in my red cap, and then I'm seeing what score do they end up with, because here's the triage. If you have a score less than four, you can do these other things, maybe no intervention, or maybe it's a pharmacologic intervention for symptomology, or maybe it's a family education setting. 
When we're at between four and eight, absolutely need to get intervention by a dietitian, And then, you know, the physician and other things. It's a team. We know we're supposed to all be a team. Um, but when we're greater than or equal to nine in the scoring, this is a critical need. We need to do something about symptom management. We need to do other nutrition intervention options or some nutrition intervention option. Okay. Um, when I looked at outcomes for the pair T tests, so in other words, the average score um, before and after in pairs, um, it's statistically significant. It, it increases dramatically at the end of treatment. So at the first treatment, 22% actually presented before treatment as having a critical score greater than or equal to nine. But the last treatment, 76% of the population that has gone through uh, radiation is critical. So just about everybody is. 85% um, never saw a dietitian. And you think, how is that possible? Because across America, we really don't place dietitians in outpatient clinic. Uh, it's usually on a consult basis. So I restricted the sample. Um, you know, as I'm collecting numbers, before you can really build great models that you believe in and do covariates that you control for, you've got, you need numbers. And I want to make sure that what I end up with is something that is, um, has great rigor to it. So right now, I just took all of those with squamous cell carcinoma, and I took all of those being definitively treat, treated through a radiation. So out of that 200, that's about 120 for us. Again, most of them are male, uh, white, non-Hispanic, Latino. 98% of these were primary tumors. Uh, this is who we have. We have mostly uh, for definitive treatment, uh, pharyngeal, mostly oropharyngeal. Uh, but we have uh, some breakdown on, on our larynx patients, and we had 9% that were unknown primaries, so we were treating um, the neck. Overall clinical stage for 101. For the other ones that I don't have that overall clinical stage, um, I actually uh, used to be able to do, do the staging, but um, to keep the rigor, I'm actually um, having other people do the staging that's missing. Um, and also know that we changed some staging. We changed in January of 2018 for HP-positive tumors. Um, so there's some sort of mix in here. But uh, most people are going for definitive RT or advanced, um, patient, advanced cancer patients. And actually, 85% um, of these were positive, HPV-positive. Most of them are oropharyngeal. Uh, so some of them just got straight RT, most of them got CCRT, concurrent um, chemoradiation therapy. So that is uh, seven, seven weeks of uh, radiation therapy, uh, five days a week. Um, here the age stays about the same as the original 200 cohort in the 60s. Um, most people are former smokers. Some people said they quit and definitely found four that did not. And BMI is higher. So it's 28. Um, but if you look at it, the majority of them are overweight or obese. So again, the grids we used before just aren't going to hold here. And right now, we don't know what their muscle mass looks like. So uh, let's just take you through this uh, slowly. Across the top, I can't figure out if I have a pointer. So across the top, we have the scores. I said there were four areas that we ask questions on, weight, food, 
symptomology, function. So those, that's the four on the top. What is the mean score for each of those before and after treat, or beginning of treatment, end of treatment, and in parentheses, the standard deviation to go with that mean? Then just for your reference point on the bottom, I have what the maximum score in that questionnaire could have been. Not the maximum score of these people, but what it could have been. You see at the end, total score, average total score for this cohort of SCC definitive treated patients, the total score and the difference between the beginning and the end. So if we just want to scoot over to that, we end with a total average score at the beginning of treatment of 4.5. And we said greater than or equal to 4, we're going to make sure they see an RD. The end treatment goes up to 14.3. So at this point, the average number of people are needing critical intervention. When we do a t-test to compare those two means between paired samples, every category changed, the change in category, the increase in score between beginning and end of treatment was statistically significantly uh, important. So uh, very, very low p-value, so very, very low probability that we, there was, you know, we saw this by, you know, it's just chance. It's a low chance. Average total score, the average delta in the score goes up about eight points from the beginning to the end. So this is just a reminder where we are. If you're four, where you're greater than or equal to nine. Now, I recategorize those points into the triage. Okay, so whatever their points were, I gave them the category, right, according to that component. So um, in the beginning, about 38% did not need any intervention based on this malnutrition risk score. But by the end, only one really seemed not to need something. If we go all the way down to the bowl, 27 or 23% presented needed really a critical intervention by a nutritionist. And at the end, 86% did. So it's giving me sort of the same thing, even though I restricted the sample, same thing I saw in the 200. Um, out of this restricted sample, 86% were alive by the end of follow-up. Now, I'm not going to do a lot with follow-up because I don't have long follow-up yet. I have about 11 months of follow-up follow with a standard deviation of six, right? So median is about 10 months. So we've got to wait for the follow-up, okay? Um, I have other databases that go back a long time where I can look at follow-up. Um, but not with this project. So I'm going to just say for now in this restricted sample that 80%, 6% were alive, 12% did die within that short follow-up. Um, RD consult at any time during treatment was 17%. So out of that critical need, only um, 20 people out of 120 uh, saw a dietitian and sadly... Uh, they saw a dietitian because during that treatment period, they were actually hospitalized for something. And that's actually when they saw the dietitian because in my cancer center, the inpatient side is staffed uh, with dietitians. The outpatient side is very loosely staffed. For my retrospective review for nutrition support. So it's just retrospective review. And you know what? If someone didn't document it, I don't have it. So I can't 
say I'm going to go to the bank with this. But if I just look at notes, um, really not too many of them were doing any kind of supplementation or help. Um, and uh, only about 13% was tube feeding. We just had a discussion. We used to prophylactic uh, do tube feeding, and now we do reactive. And I don't think the results are very good. Unplanned hospitalization out of this group, 27% of the patients had at least one planned hospitalization. Um, the mean length of stay for that person was 5.5 days. Someone actually had a stay of 29 days. 28% of those 32, 28% of the 32 actually had another hospitalization. When I look at uh, pair testing, the McNemer test, uh, statistically significant. So those who scored in positively, positively had a score for malnutrition risk. Now, I'm not saying malnutrition, I'm saying risk. They were more likely. Those were the ones that actually had the unplanned hospitalization and those that had the earlier mortality. Again, I need more information, more data, more follow-up time. But there's a suggestion there. I think it's an important one. Um, and because we have to look at functionality to think about sarcopenia, I have a team that measures function at the beginning and the end. Okay, so they um, and we're, they did 51 out of my 200 pairs, and they looked at all of these things that are up there. Not a lot of time to talk about those things because I am running late. Uh, just so that you know, people scored worse at the end. So scores uh, for at least 28% uh, um, were higher. So their functionality declines. Sarcopenia, I looked at, four, I'm only showing you data on 14. 14 head and neck patients who had full body PET CT scans within 30 days before treatment and within 90 days after. We sent these to our, my colleagues in the University of Alberta in Edmonton, Canada, who are experts. They take a, a slice of the single uh, CT scan at the L3, and that actually correlates with total body skeletal mass. And they kind of color it up uh, for me, and they estimate, I'm going quickly, understand skeletal muscle index, which um, you include height, and you get an index that you can compare. So you get something that you can, like a Z-score, that you can compare people. And then I also got a measure of muscle quality. So in other words, is how much muscle is muscle and how much fat is interlaced with the muscle. So how, what's the quality of the muscle? And uh, I use the appropriate cutoffs. You have to be careful when you read papers, even if they're published in really high impact journals, because sometimes they're not using the right cutoff. These were the correct cutoffs. Um, the, Carla Prada did this for me and that's her colleague and we've validated that. In any case, um, I'm going to show you males and females separately. You have to, because muscle mass is quite different. Uh, but they're representative of the whole population. Pre-treatment uh, BMI is very high. Okay, just to get to the news. The news is for men, there were nine of them, mostly obese. Um, one of them uh, was uh, categorized as sarcopenic before. Uh, three of them were after, very small numbers. Uh, muscle attenuation, poor quality, none of them had poor quality before, two did after seven weeks of treatment. These all received definitive CCRT. For women, there were just five, not as obese as the men. But right at the beginning of their treatment, we saw four that screened in for sarcopenia, and they stayed. I no reason why they would have gotten better. 
and two in the beginning. So in women, granted, it's five people. I don't know anything. And I'm going to get, we're going to be doing hundreds more. But uh, in the beginning, the trend is we saw it in women right at the beginning. Okay, what are our problems? Here's where we want to be. If I want to be effective as a nutritionist and we all want people to get through, we want a setting of anabolism. We want people to be uh, have anabolic competence, right? We want, and, and really when we look at things, it's this whole milieu of different things that we have to do. And right now, I think we also know besides diet, we need to do exercise. We're about to start in our head and neck uh, uh, patients doing uh, walking with them at the beginning. Um, we don't have a consensus for diagnostic criteria for each syndrome. There really is no pure phenotype for cachexia, difficult. We don't have any standardized screening. We have inadequate availability of nutrition services in the outpatient setting, hands down. Um, I did uh, a, a telephone interview of MCI-designated uh, cancer centers a while ago, and uh, we found that of the 80% that, um, that participated, um, that they didn't have necessarily RD staffed. It was uh, RD consult. Uh, we just in press uh, the oncology dietetic practice group that uh, these women are part of. Janine does, if you don't know Janine, she does a ton of work behind the scenes. Like I, I arrive towards later on and go, yeah, let's look at these numbers. Uh, but uh, Janine and a whole group of others push and push and push to get the forms that we, we have. We were at the Institute of Medicine standing up there doing this. Like that wouldn't happen. So I just, my hat is off to this woman and all, Elaine and all the other people. They're wonderful. Uh, but primary objective was, what is the staffing in ambulatory oncology settings across the United States? Well, 215 cancer centers, so NCI and non-NCI. Hey, we have one dietitian to every 2,300 patients. How do you think that works? Not very well. In fact, if we wanted to do it right, we wanted to do uh, seven to eight follow-up visits within four months of these people. We need about one to every 120 patients. So we need better screening tools. Again, I got a caution. We have to do this right because we can't start screening if we don't have any interventions. We got It's a simultaneous look at. I'm an advocate. Yeah, I'm a researcher. I'm a clinician. I'm really an advocate. I've just been walking from town to town screaming this. But RDN has to be part of the comprehensive cancer team for outpatients undergoing treatment. I'm tired of hearing, but you don't have evidence. Well, you know what? Cardiac care has dietitians. Diabetes has dietitians. In fact, you know, there's no one dialysis center without a dietitian. That would be really ridiculous. So instead, the idea that we would tell someone, here, put these amount of cans in your tube and go up to you. I hope it works out. Is sort of a, sort of just it's not even common sense. We need to be, and and this is uh, what Janine was saying yesterday. We need to be present in the clinic. We need to we need to be in the middle of the clinic with everyone else. These are all my people. Uh, yep, that's my daughter. She's done helped me with lots of research. Um, and all the wonderful people at Roswell and some of my current students who work with me there now and my wonderful colleagues um, in Canada. And I know I went way too far. So 
Um, well, not too bad. Maybe no one has a question. I don't know. I just want to say it was a pleasure to uh, relate this story to you. And I really am very happy I was given the opportunity. So thank you very much. I stunned them off. <laughs> well, I have to applaud this work. This is amazing. Uh, I mean, I think we, uh, you know, when we think of treating our cancer patients, we get so caught up in the surgery, the radiation, the chemotherapy. And I think there are so many other important facets in the management of these patients that we don't, that should be front and center. And they, they are the, the nutritional needs, the physical therapy, the speech therapy, all of these things are so imp incredibly important. Um, and, uh, you know, I think, I can't tell you how many times I've called Janine uh, when patients come in, and I have no idea what to do, how to con how to counsel them with their nutritional status, and um, and she's been a huge asset. She comes to all our two board meetings, so mm -hmm. this stuff really is is incredibly important, and I think we need to as a as a specialty really recognize mm -hmm. uh, the importance of nutrition in general and the work that you guys are doing. So congratulations, it's Thank great. You. Thank you. Yes. Obesity, as a trend in, in cancer, uh, on presentation, I mean, what, what is the feeling amongst the nutritionists about that? Uh, should something be done for the uh, morally obese cancer patient? Well, we're about to uh, provide a lot of insults, physical insults for this individual. So it's not a time for weight loss. I mean, you know, those things come after in survivorship for certain cancers, not even for all of them. It depends. Um, you know, if we could figure out a, an indicator of muscle mass, even if we did the hips and we found some strength, we could maybe just target um, how they're going to eat. Um, you know, the emphasis maybe on lean protein and getting enough energy, you know, getting enough calories. So it's not, it's not a setting for, you know, Weight Watchers for sure. Do you have anything to add? They, they, they very much could be a very low muscle mass and do quite poorly. They're going, yeah. I mean, going through radiation therapy, what I've seen Everybody's losing weight sometimes, no matter how much uh, intervention you have. But if we can contain that and be at the opposite side, seven weeks are gone and we're showing up. We're not just saying, good luck, go home. But we're showing up because these effects last outward and we need to, we need to be in there. That's what we're trained for. <laughs> Very in-depth training, too. <laughs> with the toxicity of treatment being quite high, much higher for the obese patient. Who yes, has I'm sorry. Sarcopenia, right. That's the issue. Yes, and the treatment effects are, yeah, especially with chemotherapy and excess adipose tissue. Great point. Okay. Yes. Uh, I'm a speech pathologist. Uh, Is there anything that you would someone that's a non-dietitian to do, I mean, I feel like we encounter the dysphagia population early on. Yeah, so you know what, we need to work together. And part of the business of not doing prophylactic tubes maybe anymore is because we need it. I started this when I was at NYU and unfortunately left, and I don't know if anybody picked it up, but um, a coordinated study I was doing with nutrition and uh, speech pathologists. Because really, I, I may have to do that tube, I'm sorry, but we have to do it to get through. But the whole time, we could still be eating, and it needs to be coordinated 
with dysphagia exercises. So it actually needs to be a coordinated program. Is there any kind of uh, screener out there that's, uh, you know, the screener that you were presenting on, you would want your dietitians to be doing? Is there any kind of smaller questionnaire that you would want your interdisciplinary folks to do to fly? Um, you know, I can't remember what the speech pathologist did at NYU. She, I think she's still there. I could ask what she was using. Um, but it's really actually, I see speech and rehab for exercise and nutrition. Why not build a program? I mean, we're starting to build the, you know, the programs around surgeries, right? The pre, the prehab, and then, yeah, because we built one for bladder cancer that they're doing right now uh, with an exercise component. Why can't we, let's just build that. Yeah, let's just build it. <laughs> well, some people have to push. So it's amazing what you can do sometimes without any money. Again, you got to make friends. Got to, got to figure out how to be pleasant and personable and make friends, and then everybody works together. So. Well, thank you. Thank you very much.